Let's pray for a minute. Father God, I ask that you would draw near to us today as we draw near to you, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would continue to confirm truths that we have poured over, memorized, that we act on, cause them to be fused in our minds and hearts in such a way that they form our character. We don't come here this morning just to go through a, a mere exercise. We, we come to worship you because you call your people to gather together on a regular basis and to call on your name, to seek your help, to seek your guidance. It seems like on this day we need your guidance more than ever. We pray for our nation, not that we would all of a sudden be unified in the way that we seemed to be 20 years ago, but that we would find a way to clarity, that we would find a way to make sense of our world, and that there would be a renewed resolve to do it as, white, to do it as right, to walk in wisdom, to open our eyes to the dangers of our world, but also to how much we must rely on You. You are our strength. You are our hope. You are our source of wisdom. You are the one who redeems and heals and binds together. Thank you for that song that we sang a few moments ago and the prayer that followed it that reminded us that you are our shepherd. And so we ask that you will lead and give us the ability to hear your voice. Bless our nation, Lord. We pray for wisdom for our leaders whether we voted for them or not, whether we like them or not. We pray that you will lead them with truth and wisdom and surround them with wise counsel. And we pray that you will also give us the courage to do what is right and do what you call us to do day in and day out, including this day. Now give us ears to hear from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. About 10 years ago, one of North River's members was an electrician named Jared Barber. For two years, Jared was my prayer partner, and we got to know each other rather well. And at one point, Jared did all of the electrical work for the home studios that were built by the members of the epic rock group Aerosmith. Most of those guys lived in Marshfield and Duxbury and Plymouth and towns nearby here. Now, the reason I'm telling you this story is that during one of those years when we were prayer partners, approaching the Easter season, the guys in the Aerosmith band got into a very heavy discussion about what Easter and the resurrection is really all about. And Jared was in the room, and they all knew that he was a very committed Christian, so he was drawn into their conversation when they asked what our church believes about Jesus, about Easter, about the resurrection. On the heels of that conversation, Jared came to me with a request from them asking me to write a simple answer to their question of what Easter is all about. It had to be no more than two pages, a clear written answer to their question. Now, I will probably never know if they ever even read what I wrote, and I'll probably never know if it had any impact if it did. But as I look back on this, that request and that assignment raises a question. If you were asked... Are you able to describe the heart of Christian faith in a concise and clear way 
when someone asks you what it is all about. Whether you don't know or not, whether, whether you realize it or not, people get to that point every once in a while in life where they ask, what is life all about? What is faith all about? What is Christian faith really all about? This morning we're going to look at one of those moments when Jesus responded to a question and summarized what the core of Christian faith is all about. Now let's be clear about this. There's, there's much more in the details that both Jesus and the apostles would teach later on in other parts of the Scriptures. But there are moments when that ability to succinctly describe the heart of Christian faith is called for. And Jesus rose to that challenge in the passage that we are going to explore. So good morning, my North River friends. Welcome to North River Church. This is... Uh, that the service that leads directly into North River's annual big event, and immediately after this service, many of us are going to go out into our community this morning, and we're going to divide up into teams, as Christie's already explained, and then we'll come back here for a cookout to share some of the stories that we've learned about today. Let me welcome all of those friends who are watching online this morning. We're glad that you're a part of this day with us. If you're checking out our church, this is one of those days that tells you something about the heart of North River Church. And if you're living at a distance that keeps you from participating with us, I hope that you will use this day to go out and do something that God leads you to do this afternoon on your own. Just make a difference where you are. This morning our topic is love, the power of loving our neighbors. And here's the big idea right up front if you want to check out and, and catch up on your sleep to get ready for what we're going to do this afternoon. We become the neighbors everyone wants each time we prioritize the welfare of others. We become the neighbors that we want to be and that everybody else wants each time we prioritize the welfare of others. All right, for those of you who are going to continue to listen, let me break this down a little bit. What do we learn from Jesus from Matthew 22 in this passage that is known as the Great Commandment? First thing we learn is that Jesus knew how to summarize really, really well. So those critical verses... Uh, have a question that's asked to Jesus. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replies, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then before that can even sink in, he adds a second greatest commandment to it. He says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he makes this commentary. It's an important commentary. All the law and the prophets, in other words, the whole Bible, hangs on these two commandments. Now, Jesus responded to a question that was designed to trap him. We're told that in the text. Why? The religious leaders in Jerusalem thought that their traditions were God's way. And Jesus didn't kowtow to them, and he openly challenged their authority and their traditions. In one of their questions, uh, they hoped that they could expose Jesus to be defying Scripture, and if they could do that, then they would be able to use that against him. Jesus always upheld the authority of the Old Testament Scriptures, and he rooted his teaching in the clear understanding of the Bible, so the chances that they were going to catch him were actually pretty slim. The command to love God with all that you have comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. He wasn't making it up on the spot. He was quoting from the Old Testament. And the command to love your neighbor as yourself comes from Leviticus 19.18. These two commands, Jesus was saying, summarize all the other commands that come from God. Think of it. The Ten Commandments have two sections, two parts, if you will. The first four of the Ten Commandments focus on how we respond to God. 
The final six commands all focus on how we are to treat other people. And so, in a sense, Jesus has answered wisely and said, love God comes first and then love your neighbor sums up all the rest. I like the way that my friend Neil Eaton has formed his slogan down at New Hope Chapel in Plymouth. Their motto is, love God, love people, change the world. Doesn't get any better than that. If we could rip it off and we could have been first with that, we would have. The truth is he stole it from somebody else. It wasn't that original. (laughs) Neil, if you're listening, I love you, buddy. Jesus answered in a way that simplifies our focus without excising any of God's commands. That's the brilliance of this statement. The Apostle Paul echoed Jesus' point in Romans 13.10 that loving your neighbor as yourself sums up all of the commands that are related to treating other people. So these two commands reinforce each other, these two great commands. When we love God wholeheartedly, that love flows out to the people that God loves. And we cannot truly and fully love our neighbors without the way that God's love transforms us. That is why loving God comes first, and then He sends us out to love our neighbors. So Jesus knew how to summarize well, and it's important that we know that at times, that there are certain slogans that Jesus crafted so that they would stick in our minds. Here's the second discovery about Jesus that that I find from this passage today. Jesus loves it when we get this. He absolutely loves it. So the same teaching comes up in another place in Luke chapter 10. There it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So again, we have an expert in the law testing Jesus, different question, but the same answer, even though it's a different question. He says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus throws it back at the guy. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Notice Jesus' answer. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So here we find another religious expert in the law who wants to test Jesus. His question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers with a question of his own, saying, before I answer you, let me, let me see what your thoughts are. How do you read the Scriptures? What do they say? And then this Old Testament law expert answers the same way that we saw Jesus answering in Matthew 22. Love God, and then love your neighbors as yourself. And Jesus' answer indicates that this man is on the right path. Part one of his answer, he says, you have answered correctly. So he's saying yes to the two most important commands. He's saying, I love this. You got it. Part two, he adds, do this and you will live. And this is the tricky part because we all fall short in our attempts to do this. This is the gospel. We are loved greatly by God and we are more rebellious than we realize. Nobody loves God flawlessly. We all draw limits on how much we will love our neighbors and which ones we will love and which ones we will exclude. We literally run from God at times, and at other times we get selfish and even do harm to our neighbors. This man's shortfall was quickly realized in his own mind, and it becomes revealed in his next question. And so Luke tells us in verse 29, Luke 10, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, 
And who is my neighbor? So, so notice, he wanted to justify himself. That means that he knew he felt short of fully loving God and fully loving his neighbors. He was honest in his self-appraisal. To justify here means defending his ways and actions. And then his self-justifying question comes. And who is my neighbor? He was asking Jesus, in effect, how far do I have to go? I think I'm a good neighbor. Is that enough? Friends, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had over the last 30 years or so with people who are betting their eternal destiny on their own self-appraisal that they are good neighbors. You and I are surrounded by people like that, and some of us in this room are banking on that thing. When I get to God and God says, why should I let, me, let you into my heaven? I'm going to say, because I was a good neighbor. Whoa, 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 whoa. We need to look really closely because our own self-appraisal is not what God is looking for. It comes out this way. I'm a good person. Surely God knows that. So, according to Jesus, is our own self-appraisal of goodness enough to bet your eternal destiny? Third discovery about Jesus. The right story clarifies and sticks. Luke 10, Jesus tells a story right after that man asked that question, and who is my neighbor? This is the way it reads, starting in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his, of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Critical words in the story, but a Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, Jesus asks. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus' story that we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan was designed to make listeners think. This is what we call subversive teaching because we naturally put ourselves into the story. First, we imagine that we were the person who was beaten, stripped, robbed, and left for dead lying in the road. What would we hope for in the midst of that situation? And then after we've thought about that for a little while, the second way that this subversive teaching affects us is we put ourselves into the shoes of these three men who come down the same road and walk by this scene. Jesus designed this story in such a way that we would all do this. When we put ourselves in the shoes of the man lying in the road, we all want somebody to stop and notice and help. Perhaps you've never been beaten and robbed and left for dead in the road. I haven't either. I'm grateful for that. 
But there are several points in life where we all just need a little bit of help from another person in order to make it, in order to get out of a hole that we've dug for ourselves, in order to get out of a trap that we've fallen into, in order to figure out a puzzle that's just too hard to figure out by yourself. Even more, Jesus wanted this teacher of the law to consider these three travelers. The priest was a professional teacher and religious leader. The hope is that surely this man of God will stop and help. After all, he's been appointed by God, hasn't he? Perhaps the man thought that if he stopped to help that he too would be beaten and robbed, that there's somebody waiting in the bushes and they'll descend on him. Perhaps he thought through his daily calendar and determined that he was just too busy, he had important things to do, and people were waiting for him. And he quietly walks by. The Levite was a man who made his living caring for the temple grounds and the facility. And Jesus' audience would think, this is a guy who knows how to get things done. It's likely that the same thoughts and the same concerns ran through his mind too. And Luke just, uh, or Jesus just says, and according to Luke here, and he too quietly walks by. And then Jesus introduces a third traveler with those words, but a Samaritan. Jesus' audience would think, a Samaritan? Oh boy, this is going to get even worse. We avoid Samaritans. They are the lowlifes. We want nothing to do with them. But notice five things about what Jesus explains here. First, the man stops. He tends to the beaten man on the spot with what he had. And so he pulls out some olive oil and some wine and he, he begins to clean the wounds. Second, he took him to the nearest inn, or a, which was probably a, a home with a room to rent. A, a room that would be lent out to traveling guests who were making their way through. Third, and this is almost lost in the story, he doesn't just drop him off with the innkeeper. He took care of him that evening. It says that in the morning, that's the fourth step, in the morning he had to go about doing his business and he gives two days wages to the innkeeper and says, watch over him. And then there's a fifth thing, he promises to reimburse the innkeeper if there were any more charges incurred. I've got news for you, this guy goes tremendously far out of his way to help. He doesn't just stop in the road, there are five steps to what he does. And now Jesus asks the all-important defining question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? The obvious answer from the teacher of the law is the one who showed mercy. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan, the one who showed mercy. The Samaritan who made it his business to stop and help was the neighbor among the three of them, not the priest who wrapped himself in the functions of religion, not the Levite whose obligation was to do the things that the priest couldn't do, but the Samaritan. So we come back to our big idea for today. We become the neighbors everyone wants. Everybody who reads this story puts themselves in, in the story and thinks, if I'm the person lying in the ground, I want somebody to be a neighbor to me, to make themselves a neighbor to me, to stop and to help me. We become those neighbors each time we prioritize the welfare of others. Okay, if it's not already abundantly clear, how does this connect with today? Here's our, mission, our, our vision statement for North River. 
People being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. So today is the day after September 11th. When we started this big event uh, a number of years ago, we deliberately chose to hold this as close to 9-11 as possible. The Sunday that was closest, we wanted to add something deliberately positive to this particular weekend. We know that Jesus calls us to serve others because our neighbors matter to God. So, loving our neighbors is something that requires intentionality. Today, we're being intentional about it. Loving our neighbors is meant to be a lifestyle, not a one-day act, but we hope that this particular act jump-starts and prompts other things that we will do on our own or in groups throughout the rest of the year. We have also learned over time that many of our efforts are better together, so we are doing this together. This week, like me, probably you have watched and read through many summaries of what happened on 9-11 20 years ago. One of the stories that I read yesterday was from the wife of Tom Burnett, who was one of the men who, along with Todd Beamer, who led that charge on Flight 93 when they uh, took the plane back and, and crashed it. The last words that he said to his wife on the phone were, we're going to do something. And then he hung up. Folks, today, it may not change the world. Let's do something. Amen? Amen. Lord God, thank you for the opportunity we have today to be creative about the way that we serve and the way that we make you known. May others see that we serve people around us because you have served us first and you've called us to serve in the same way. You have loved us first and you've called us to love in the same way. Let that be the heartbeat of North River this day and every day. And let that love of God fall on every person who's here. Whether we have other plans today and other things that prevent us or whether we're going out or whether we're online, and I pray that you will bless our efforts to try and allow other people to know that there are people of God who are listening and serving because of the powerful grace of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.